Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 375. Yes, who would believe 375 episodes? It's over eight years when we began My Life Chassidah Supplied. And I want to thank you, each one of you, for listening, for partnering, for asking questions, responding, commenting, critiquing, everything that comes in a true relationship. With the objective, very straightforward, in the purest fashion, taking chsidus and bringing it into the chutzah, distributing it, yafutsu, spreading it, disseminating it into chutzah, beginning the chutzah of, our, of applying it to our personal lives, our psychological, emotional lives, and of course, chutzah includes chutzah shein chutzah to the farthest outskirts, both physically, spiritually, and uh, psychologically and emotionally as well. That no, there's no area in existence in the human psyche, in the general world, where chassidus does not have what to say, not just what to say, but to give us true guidance and direction in how to live our best possible lives and fulfilling the mandate and the purpose for which God created us. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menucha Miriam Baschaya Sara Altes, and Yikusil ben Leir Rochel, Rochel Basli Bafarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadras ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altes. Okay, so we are in the week of Parshas Vayero, the fourth Parsha in the Teda, which began with Bereshis, the narrative of Genesis going through the story of Noyach and the Flood, Lech Lecha, the story of Avram Avinu, which continues in this week's Parsha, last week's dramatic chapter, when Hashem makes the covenant with Avram Avinu, a covenant that is a living and alive till this very day, and only growing, and the promise that was fulfilled, the promise Hashem gave to Abraham, that you'll have children that will be spread all over the world like the stars in the sky. Look, you and I, each one of us, is a living miracle of that promise. What were the odds, the odds that one man and one woman of Raman Sarah, unable to have children, should have a child, Yitzchak, who would then have a child, Yaakov, and then Yaakov would have children, and that in an unbroken chain, we would go through everything we've gone through and be here today in 2021, Tafshin Pei Beis, almost 3,800 years since that promise was made. And now we come into Pasha's Vayera. Vayera is Vayera of Hashem. Hashem appears to Avram Avinu. The first time we find an appearance in the, that dramatic fashion, though Hashem, of course, spoke to Avram, the whole Pasha is named that way, comes to see Avram Avinu, firstly to be Mavakar Chela. Avram had just circumcised himself. And, um, and then, of course, the story begins with the angels coming and Avram Avinu seeing them, did not know their angels, messengers of God, to bring the great news that they will have a child, as was promised in the previous chapter, and the other events, subsequent events of this Pasha. So let's start with just a, a lesson, a basic lesson, Vayera Lov Hashem. As the Tzemach Tzedek told the Rebbe Rashab, who was, as a child came in for a, for a birthday blessing, Chav Cheshvan is his birthday, we'll talk about that next week, but it corresponds usually with Parsha Vayera, and he came in for a bracha and he was crying. Tzemach Tzedek said, why are you crying? He says, because I just read, we just learned 
that Hashem appeared to Avram Avinu. And I'm crying, why didn't he appear to me? Why doesn't he appear to me? That alone is a lesson in life. And a person cries not just when they're in pain or where their needs are not met, but they want to experience the truth, the higher reality of godliness. So here a little boy who would become, of course, a great Rebbe himself, but it teaches us, number one, what we should be crying for, what our standards should be, what our values, what, where, we sh- where, where our eyes, where we, sh- where we should set our sights to. And the response of the Tzamech Tzedek was, V'na'id, and sometimes uh, there's a version, V'na'id at Tzadik, when a Jew at Tzadik, a righteous person, at 99 years old decides to circumcise himself, he's worthy of God appearing to him. So there you have also in the answer a tremendous lesson. The lesson of divine revelation comes through our efforts when we pay a price. Now today, thank God, we circumcise ourselves not at age 99, but at age 8 days old. We don't actually circumcise ourselves. We have are circumcised. Our parents uh, arrange for that. But the idea that when you want great things, great revelations, you have to circumcise yourself. Circumcise figuratively means you have to remove all the things that are blocks and obstacles to allow the truth to emerge in your own life. And when that's in place, that takes away the blocks and allows God's revelation to appear to us in the same fashion. Now, appearance is not, this is not a magic show. It's not like an appearance suddenly out of the, from behind the curtain. It's an experience. It's a higher consciousness. And the higher consciousness in life, to be able to reach that, requires some way of getting out of your comfort zone. So that's lesson number one. Get out of your comfort zone. And that's exactly what Avram Avinu did. And with that began the whole story that continues. And that's indeed why we're here thousands of years later. Because when you put, make that effort, and don't just live a life of instant gratification. And whatever comes your way, that's what you follow, your whim. But you dedicate your life to that higher state of awareness and consciousness and bring it into action. Into your, into your cognitive, emotional, and behavioral, uh, behavioral life, then you experience these higher states. And that's its lesson. Another lesson of going out of a comfort zone is right there in the beginning also. What happens when Hashem is coming, is visiting him, Avram Avinu, that's where we learn the mitzvah, to visit the sick. And Avram suddenly sees from a distance three strangers, nomads, wandering in the desert. And what does Avram Avinu do? He turns away from God to greet the strangers. What kind of behavior is that? Furthermore, the Gemara says, and learns from this, that greeting guests is even greater than greeting God. And we learn this from Avram, because he turned away from God to greet guests. He didn't know they were angels coming to send him a message. They were guests. They were strangers. They were nomads. So we learn it from Avram, but how did Avram know? Because Avram went through Lech Lecha, last week's chapter, he went out of his comfort zones. He left all his different subjective past of his own natural biases, the ones that are, the, the biases and prejudices we pick up from our homes, Beis Avicha, and the subjectivity of social and peer pressure so he already went out of his comfort zone. He understood that to experiencing El Eretz HaShadareka, to know who you really are, to experience God beyond the trappings, you need to get out of your comfort zone. So yes, of course, it was the unbelievable revelation that God appears to him. But he realizes, and without even 
hesitating. He doesn't even have to ask permission. Someone comes to visit you, even a human being, and someone else, you want to turn to someone else. You say, excuse me, pardon, sorry. None of that. Why? Because he understood greeting guests was not, it was not contradictory to greeting God. If you don't greet God's creatures, you're not greeting God. If your religion is about you and God, and you, can, and you ignore those that are around you in need, or possible need, that itself is, def- is defiling and desecrating God. So he understood very well that God is not just a personal experience. He sees people who may need help and hospitality. He welcomes them. And God, of course, was happy with that. That's how Avram Avinu knew. We learn it from Avram Avinu. So going out of your comfort zone is so much part of the narrative, both last week's chapter and this week's chapter. And with that, let's go into a bunch of questions or asked about this week's Parsha. Of course, the most dramatic or maybe the most controversial episode in this chapter is the Akedus Yitzchok at the end of the chapter, which is, so we'll begin with that and we'll work our way backwards. Why would a benevolent God ask Abraham to kill his son? And why does Abraham comply without question? More specifically, can you address why Avram believed in a God who asked him to kill his child? If God is truly righteous and just, how did Avram know that he wasn't hallucinating when he was asked to kill his very own son? It seems to be antithetical to all that God stands for and what we believe God is. How could it be that God would ask someone to kill someone, an innocent person, never mind their own child? It's something that I've never heard a satisfactory answer for. I was hoping you can address that and provide insight. More people wrote about this. Let me just read some of the different ways people communicate. Dear Sunday Night Rabbi, In today's time, if Avram tied up his child to an altar in Prospect Park and stood above him swinging a giant sword and screaming that he's going to kill him, well, I don't know, that's not exactly, that's it's being a little whimsical here or humorous, he would immediately be arrested for child endangerment among many other criminal offenses. If he told the judge at his trial that he did it because God instructed him to do so, he would be remanded to the King's County Psychiatric G building for the criminally insane. So why is it okay to teach this violent story to our children in school? I'm reading it uncensored, even though I feel a little disrespectful. But as you know, people write, so I read. I won't, um, there are certain lines I won't cross, obviously, but still it's important to feel that people can that should feel comfortable that they can write, and I will read their questions. Another question in this spirit, Hi, Rabbi, we are taught in the Ten Commandments that we are required to honor and obey our parents. The exception is in the case where our parents ask us to do something contrary to the Torah. I have always had a problem with the story of the Akedah. The Ovis kept the entire Torah before Matan albeit mostly in a spiritual sense. And the Torah prohibits murder and child sacrifice. So why was Avram required to fulfill God's request of filicide? Why couldn't Avram reply to God and say, sorry, I can't kill my son because the Torah prohibits it? In the end, we find out it was only a test. But look at the bad example Avram is setting. What if a parent tells their child to eat pork? Should the child go along with it because it might be a case where the father is just testing the son? Okay. And many, many more questions in the same vein. Maybe it's a question that goes back 3,800 years or the exact amount of time and when the Akedah happened. It is one of the most controversial stories that the very request and Avram just complying. And I'm going to add a few more questions. 
just for for the, just to sometimes you answer a question with a question, but just to really amplify the issue here. Firstly, not only did Avram comply, he just went to land, he did a bezirizus, as the Alter Rebbe emphasizes in Agerus HaKedosh. But Yashkum Avram Babeka, as soon as he got up in the morning, he didn't procrastinate, he could have said, we'll do it eight a little later in the day, immediately. Secondly, in the same chapter, just a few verses earlier, we hear our Avram is not such a complier to God's commandments. When Hashem tells him, I'm going to destroy the city of Zedem, what does Avram do? He doesn't just, he's not just passive and complacent. He argues with God, and God knew he would argue with him. That's why he first considered concealing the fact from Avram. And he, bef- and he argues and says, how could, how People say the judge of the entire universe doesn't do justice. But this was a cruel city of Zedem. But he's looking, maybe there's some tzaddikim, some righteous people. 50, 40, he can't even find one. So when Avram wants to complain and wants to stand up to argue with God, we know that he could quite well do it. He just did it in his name. Comes to his own son, innocent son. He can't even compare his name to his son. We go right ahead. So the contrast is so glaring, you have to say there's something much more going on here. Furthermore, every day we say, in the morning, and Yom Rosh Hashanah, the, whole, the first day of the year, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, we read about it. We're invoking it, actually. And, and then, finally, even if it happened, why do we have to be told that it happened? And everything that happened is told in the Torah, not everything. That means it's not just relevant to us. It's so fundamental, we say it every day. And in Rosh Hashanah, we read about it. And, of course, it stands out as the greatest of all tests that Avram withstood, the Esar Nesianus, the different, the Esar Nesianus, the 10 tests that Avram was given, this is the final and the highest one of them. With therein lies the answer. I've definitely discussed this in previous episodes, but since this question keeps coming up. So you have to say that there's something deeper going on here. But if you think about it, you don't need to rely on Suyit Shabbat here only. Kabbalah and Chassidus. So here's the story. It's the tenth of, it's the ninth, is the last of ten tests, nine tests before this preceded it. Avram Avinu had a long relationship with God already. Pasha Lech Lecha. He went through Lech Lecha Ma'atzacha. We talked about Vayera Lov Hashem, God revealing himself. So we're talking about a man who discovered God at age three different expression, different uh, versions, but we say basically stages in the age 40. And every stage, he discovered more of godliness. So we're not talking about a person first time is suddenly a naive little man that is meeting God and God is telling him, go ahead and kill your son. Talking about a person who had a sophisticated and profound relationship. And you can imagine the search that Ramavinu went on to find God. He grew up in a home of pagans, of idol worshippers. So when you put that into context, it takes on a whole different story. We're not talking about a person, oh, you know, he's, he's like, whatever God says, I'll do. He went through, paid heavy prices to be a man of faith, to establish monotheism, to go around, not only that, to create a movement that would change the world forever. And then this story. So the story and context has to tell you, especially the end of the story, where we do see it was a test, 
that this was not about God asking him to kill his son, as you literally read it. This is about God building a deeper relationship with Avram Avinu. And here's a simple explanation. We all have our needs. Human beings are driven by self-interest. And we have our needs, our subjective needs. That doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It could be because our needs are not someone else's needs and there can be conflict and divisiveness and even battle and war, as we've seen throughout history. But a person could also determine, you know what? For my needs, for my happiness, to have a meaningful life, to have a fulfilling, a fulfilling life, it's important to have a God in my life. What means a God? A higher authority who I subject myself to. That too is important to have. But it's still a God on our terms. It's also important to recognize gratitude. God gives me life. He gives me sustenance. He gives me a family. He gives me a wife and children. In this case of Avram, Sarah, and his son Yitzchak. His earlier son Yishmael with Hagar. So good. All this is to be thankful. This is a relationship with God. But a relationship with God is a lot deeper than that. You want a full relationship. It can't just be on your terms. A real partnership has to be an interface we also have God on God's terms. And Avram was not satisfied with the God on his own terms. That's why he came to discover in general what God really was. First he looked for God in the meadows and the fields. Then he looked for it in the heavens, sun, the moon. He realized all of that is not God. What he came, finally came to realize is that he's looking for God. If God is the reality, the ultimate whole reality of everything, the part doesn't seek the whole, is not, the part doesn't define the whole, the whole defines the part. So he realized that he had to surrender and give up his own way of looking at it, and then God will emerge. Not that I'm looking for God. I'm the center of the universe, and I'm going to determine what is God. He was not looking for a God that's a product of human logic and human mathematics and calculations and reasoning. He wanted a God on God's terms. On God's terms, that takes time. So first... You establish a relationship with God on your terms. The Akedah was the ultimate test. And the sign also means from the word nest, elevating him. It wasn't just a test to see, are you going to listen to me? We already know he, he listens to God. We've seen it nine times before and serious challenges that were presented to him. But this was the ultimate because are you ready to give up your biological, natural love for me? This wasn't because he wanted Yitzchok to be killed, God forbid. It was to infuse love of your child, not just because he's your biological child. Look how many parents, unfortunately, just to use an extreme example, they think their children belong to them, and look how they treat them. Sometimes they abuse their children. I don't mean necessarily physical abuse. Even when you decide something for your child that's not necessarily good for your child, but you think it's good, because it's good for you, it makes you look good, you're in some way hurting your child. That's because... You feel, I own the child. At least I control my child. Hashem wanted to purify Avram's father and son relationship that it should be a divine relationship, not just as a biological one. So he said to take your bincha, yechidcha, sharahafta, your only child with Sarah, the one that you love, emphasizing that. Why emphasize that? Because that's the whole point. It's not about Yitzchok, it's about sacrificing your connection to him based on your limited biological connection which can go be beautiful. It could be nurturing and loving as Avram was. But it could also have blind spots. You see, Avram has to, ask, has to listen to Sarah when it comes to Yishmael being sent away for the benefit and welfare of um, Yitzchak. So you see, Avram didn't always have it perfect because it was still part his what made sense to him. Even Avram Avinu, 
So Hashem was saying, Akedah, bind your son. It doesn't say kill your son. Bind your son. And bring him as an offering to me. The offering here is that your son is not just because you get, it's your seed that you gave birth to, but it's because I gave you the blessing. And that infused the love of father to son with a divine element that till this day, that love never dies. Had this story never happened, we would never have that commitment. Now we know, and we saw what happens of Ramavinu's love for Yitzchak. You can imagine what it was like afterwards. Because now it was infused, not just because I love you because you're my flesh and blood. I love you because God gave, him to, gave you to me. So it was in addition to the biological. But there was once in history where Hashem had to establish that. That's why we don't have, there's no other examples of it. People talk about, look at the Bible, fill aside. Yeah, show me one other example. Human offerings, God forbid. Even in the time of Avram, if you knew that was unacceptable. And that's why Avram did not resist. By Zdoim, he saw a wicked city, he was begging for compassion. Avram understood. He may not have understood exactly what is going to happen here, but Avram fully understood the idea that if God is asking him, I know this God, I know him well. If there's someone you know intimately well, for years and years, you love them, in the deepest way, and they ask you to do something you don't understand, even if it's something so, seems so strange, but you know it's God. Avram Avinu knew there was something deeper. He may even have sensed that there was something that he had to give up. And that's what he did. And as soon as Hashem saw that, there was no need. That was not the intention. It wasn't Hashem changed his mind. He never intended it in the first place. And it was replaced with a ram, that becomes a ram's horn that we use on Rosh Hashanah. And that's why we invoke this every day in davening and by Rosh Hashanah and so many other different ways. Because we say to Hashem, look, our forefather, our first patriarch, Avram Avin, look what he did. He gave up everything, ready to give up everything, even his own biological, natural love, without question. Zdoim was an act of compassion. Here he wasn't asking for Achmonas on his son because he knew it was not about sacrificing his son. He knew there was something deeper going on. He may have even sensed what it was. So that was the fact. So that puts the whole thing into a different context. So yes, on the surface level, it seems so crazy. It seems so uh, violent. But it's not at all. And that's why we teach it to our children. We teach our children the same thing. We love you. But we don't just love you biologically. We love you with God's love. When the Friedrich Rebbe was looking for a teacher for his three daughters, the Rebbe Rashab was involved. So they interviewed different teachers, one teacher. Well, they asked the different teachers, what will you do by comes to Akedah with the children? So one teacher said he's going to skip it because it's too terrifying. They're, not, they're too young. So they obviously denied hire him. Why? He seemed to be sensitive to the children. You can read a story like that, that they bring Yitzchak, Akedah binds him, ready to kill him. Because this is Tedus Emes, and Tedus Emes, and Tedus Chesed. And as a teacher, it's not your job to censor what is given to children. Children have a certain purity that they can relate to things. We're not talking about another type of book. So it's true that if we heard this story today, someone doing it. It's not Avramavinu. How do you even know it's God? Here it was very clear that it was coming from a godly place. How Avram knew? Well, he knew God already. So he knew that it wasn't coming from a hallucination, God forbid, or any other way. And he, and, he, and he understood that there's something profound here. He may have even understood what it was to some extent. 
And that's, actually, that's what actually happened. So look at the end of the story. We have to know the end of the story. Sometimes the greatest things come when you're ready to give something up. We spoke before about getting out of a comfort zone and embracing something far greater than you are. And then that far greater than you are, not just God on your terms, then that becomes on your terms because Avram and Yisra continued to live together for a number of years. Avram had the nachas of Yitzchak, but now it was infused with something that was divine on divine terms, not just on human terms. So the blessing of children is a great blessing. The lesson to us is this, that the blessing of children is a great blessing, but it's even greater when you understand that the children are also God's children. The Rebbe once told someone who, unfortunately, hit his, he couldn't control himself. He got angry with hit his children. And he could not stop himself. So the Rebbe, he wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said to him, these are God's children. You have no right to touch God's child. So in other words, besides being your child, it's God's child. And that can add a whole other dimension that's especially relevant today when we think we're doing good things for our children. Sometimes you have to check and see with an objective party, is it indeed good? And know that it's not just about you, but it's about what Hashem wants. And that's why Taka the Mitzvah is, that Kabbalah Savichah V'Simecho is only when you're doing what God wants. If you tell the children to do something opposite, they're not supposed to listen. In this case, as I said, Avram Avinu was of a different level completely. He understood that what Hashem is telling to him was of a higher level, and that itself is a command, and so on. So he wasn't, God wasn't commanding. If God had commanded him to go worship Avedizara, you could imagine that's not something that he also would have understood, but that you see that it doesn't happen. God did not ask him to do that, and God didn't ask him to kill his son either. So there's a deeper story as we just elaborated. Okay. Going back to the beginning of the Pasha, we talk about the story where the Malachim came. So we know that they came for different reasons. One was to give the Psuda the good news that uh, Avram and Yisrael are going to have a child. It was one came to, to destroy Stoim, the wicked city of Stoim, and to save Lot. So now when Avram greeted them, it says they were eating. He served them food. How are the angels able to eat with Avram in his tent if angels are spiritual being, beings that don't eat physical food? So first of all, the Medrash addresses this. It says, Musa." When you come to a city, you behave as the city does. Angels don't eat, but since they're now in a city, they're with Avram, where humans do eat, so they ate. Was it something that they make and believe or the actual eating? There are questions of how to explain it. But another story, the opposite. When Moshe Rabbeinu was on Har Sinai, and, and in, in Ruchnius, they don't eat. So he also didn't eat. He didn't eat and drink. There's the Medrash asked, was he in pain from it, or it was, like, it was normal, it was regular? Which can say the same thing, you could say the same thing with these angels. Did they actually eat? Or it was just, it seemed like they, from the point of view of Achnas Sarchim, it makes no difference because Avram Avinu did his part, it's hospitality. It's a Gavra thing. But the Pale Mamish, that's why the angels ate. More specifically, since the angels were coming to get involved with the worldly matters, whether it was the news about Sar having a physical child, or on the other extreme, destroying Zdoim, so the angels did manifest in some physical manner. So that's a quick answer to that question. Okay, now, so when Sarah heard that she's going to have a child, she laughed. Why was Sarah punished for laughing when the angels told her she would have a child at age 90? Why did we look at Sarah's laughing as a scornful expression of disbelief and a lack of faith? Maybe she was laughing out of joy and happiness that she would finally have a child. If someone told me 
that in a week I would have the winning ticket to the grand jack- jackpot of the lottery, I would laugh, scream, and dance with joy. Laughing is a valid expression for releasing joy. Sarah did absolutely nothing wrong. May we all laugh and celebrate the coming of Mashiach together. Well, let's look at the actual verse. First of all, it doesn't say she was punished. It says like this. When Sarah heard this, she said, at this age, to have a child? So she laughed. Hashem says to Avram Avinu, why is your wife laughing? Now she laughed inside, but Hashem saw that she's laughing. Am I not able to do wonders? She's questioning my ability. And then Hashem confronts Sarah, and Sarah says, I didn't laugh because she was afraid. And Hashem says, yes, you did laugh. So what's going on here? Rashi in Pasha Lech already addresses that Avram also laughed when he heard it. But Rashi says Avram laughed in joy. And Sarah's laugh seemed like it was some disbelief. And that's why she was reprimanded, so to speak. But when you think of the story, it's very strange. What's the end of the story? Yitzchak is born, and what is he named? Yitzchak. Because everyone that will hear this will laugh with me. And rejoice with me. So why would the child be named after something that God, so to speak, reprimanded? You have to say there's something more here. What is a laugh? A laugh is when you, regular language, people speak. It's a certain, has a certain tone. When something touches you in a deeper place, it can lead to, yes, a cry, if it's a sad thing, or cries of joy. And a laugh, a laughter is a type of like, when you say, simcha together. It goes out of the regular structure, out of the regular parameters. That's a laugh. A joke, humor, elicits a laugh. Something really happens that's special, extraordinary, it elicits a laugh. So when it came to Avram, it was definitely extraordinary, and the joy of hearing this led to a laugh. For Sarah, it was even deeper. As a mother, even has even closer and intimate connection with her child, the laugh was, this is completely out of the ordinary. It wasn't just joy. It was completely out of the ordinary. It could be interpreted in a, in a way, is this actually possible? But that too can also be meant to say in a great way that God can do anything. And that's what God says. Is she wondering, does she not know that I can do, he called him a call dove, I can do anything? Wondrous? And when Hashem finally confronts Sarah, she was afraid to say that because human beings live within parameters. And the mere fact that you go into a level of Yitzchak is the opposite of Yirah, which is the fear that she had, the awe of God. So she went back into a state of Yira instead of Simcha, or Ava, which comes from, from Tzchik, from laughter. And Hashem says to her, no, yes, you did laugh, and it's a good thing that you laughed. Because indeed, it is something out of the ordinary, extraordinary. The Torah is coming to teach us two things here. There are people who can laugh for, because they're out of disbelief or they're skeptical. But people can laugh because they realize it's something completely beyond. And that's why Yitzchok's called that name because he personified, he embodied that lemaile If you want save of kalam and not just mamala kalam, a divine experience that transcends the regular boundaries. And Yitzchok also, that's why in the future we'll say Yitzchok ata avinu, because Yitzchak also represents the simcha and the joy of Geula, which is also out of the ordinary. 
not just simcha in the, the parameters and boundaries of existence, but completely beyond. And that's what Sarah experienced. So when God challenged her, she went back to that state of Yira, but in truth, Hashem says, no, you did laugh. Which may also explain the Rashi there that says key. Her key was, the, the first key is because she, because she was afraid. And Hashem says key. You did laugh, key, but you did laugh. But, in other words, is you did laugh. And that is a positive thing. This is one of the explanations in this, uh, this verse. Okay. Now, why did Avram Avinu indeed protest God's plan to destroy the evil city of Zdaim? If Hashem sent three angels to tell us that he planned to destroy a purely evil city, or in today's terms, if Hashem said he planned to destroy the headquarters of ISIS, nobody in their right mind would protest. So why did Avram protest God's plan to destroy the evil city of Zdaim? Unless perhaps Avram secretly liked some of the people in Zdaim? Is that possible? No. That's not possible. And the answer lies actually a few verses earlier. It says, Hashem, Hashem Avram, am I going to conceal from Avram my plans that I'm going to destroy stone? Why should God conceal it? Because he didn't want Avram to challenge it. And it was a negative thing. He wanted to keep Avram out of it. But then he says, no. A man, a man who committed his life and his children and his family forever to do tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness, virtue, and justice. A man like that I'm going to conceal my plans from. It's an unbelievable verse when you think about it. What makes God change his mind? He tells us, we don't even have to know. Why do we have to know that God wanted to conceal? But he wants to tell us, I'm going to reveal, as Chassidus explains, even my, the things that are concealed by me, my concealed plans to a man who's ready to make such sacrifice as we spoke about Avram's sacrifices. He's ready to give up everything for kindness and virtue instead of living a life of self-interest, egocentric, to live a God-centric life. A man like that, I will not hide my plan. And that tells you the story. And indeed, man of Zdok and Mishpat, what is he going to do when Hashem says, I'm destroying an evil city? He's going to say, maybe there's something redeeming there. He wasn't coming to defend their crimes. Avram Avinu quite, quite knew much about corruption and depravity, he, he was around it. He was surrounded by it. He knew what Zdaim was like. But maybe there's some justice. Maybe there's a spark of godliness in there. And so Avram lived up to what Hashem was so touched by, the Zdokah Mishpat. That's what a man, a righteous man does. I say this sometimes to people I know who are Muslims. I say, look, you talk about infidels. What did Avram, your great-grandfather, do? He fought for infidels. He defended them. He looked for a way to redeem them. That's what a man of Zdokka Mishpah does. Because it's coming from a pure place. He's not talking about allowing criminals to remain criminals. He obviously wanted their redemption, but unfortunately could not find, and the only one he found was Loit. And Hashem Takah sends the Malachim to save Loit and his family. Which leads to the next question. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. I hope your new year will be filled with revealed blessings from Hashem. My, my question is, why would Avram risk his life and freedom to rescue Leit after he was kidnapped in a battle? By most accounts, Leit was an evil savage who willingly and gleefully gave his daughters over to a mob of rapists to assault them. That's the story in his dream. Leit was not deserving of anyone coming to rescue him. If anything, Avram should have gone to his dream earlier to rescue Leit's daughters from their abusive 
father. Was there anything redeeming about Leid that inspired Avram to rescue him? Well, you see in this parsha that Hashem sends Malachim to rescue Leid. Leid was, of course, Avram's nephew. So he may have had his challenges, and that's why he moved away from Avram, but he still was not a Sodomite. He was not from one of the Anshay's Dame. So, as we learn in Chassidus, everything has Nitzvah's Gedusha. Even Shalosh Klippus Atmeis has a spark of the divine, but it gets so darkened, like a black hole, like Chetich HaNasa that you can't remove it. That's why it's Osir V'Kosher B'Deach Etzenim. It's off limits. The only way to redeem it is by avoiding it, refraining. But there are sparks that can be redeemed. And Light is a perfect example. Despite some of Light's issues, so to speak, Avram saw in him his own blood, his own flesh and blood. And that's where he went to save him. And you see again how Shem saves Light and his family. His sons-in-law didn't want to leave. Because Light reigns a redeeming element even in that city of Zdaim. There are deeper and other explanations given to it, but it's a pretty basic answer, which of course carries the lesson to us about, about how we should be looking at people, even when somebody may be living in a cruel place, a, a, a wicked place, like Zdaim or Gemara, Zdaim and Gemara, nevertheless, always look for the redeeming factors and try to liberate and free them whenever possible. Okay. I'm going to move now to some other subjects. We covered the Pasha. Those that we didn't cover, maybe I'll continue next week or we'll figure out a way. I have to say questions are coming in much faster than I can address every week. And that's life. And I don't know, I'm not sure how to resolve that. I just will cover everything. So please don't in any way feel um, discouraged if, some, if your question wasn't answered yet. I will get to it. But in time, because of all the flow of questions, it's just a sign of the popularity of this class. But, um, but also, the fact that just to be realistic, I have to be able to uh, cover a certain amount of ground, which I, please God, will try to do the best of my ability. Okay. So, completely different subject. Well, everything is always connected, I'm sure. This week, it is forecasted by meteorologists that there will be a huge solar storm with a possible coronal mass ejection of radiation creating a geomagnetic storm that could hit Earth. Is it possible that this type of solar event is what the prophets describe as when Mashiach comes, Hashem will remove the sun out of its shield or sheath? Should we get ready for Mashiach's imminent arrival? Everything is possible. I am not going to be able to say whether it's a fulfillment or not. There are many, many signs of Mashiach's arrival. The Rebbe mentioned many of them. So if indeed this can be interpreted as another way of, of reminding us about Mashiach, by all means, like the Rebbe Rashab said, he doesn't like when people say interpretations in Tanya, besides the Pshat. But if it adds in Yerushalayim, he doesn't mind. I can't say with anything definitive that this solar storm is a sign of that God removes the sun from its sheath, which, by the way, has a connection to the Parsha, because that's what God did, in some, in some minimal way at least, for Avram Avinu, that the sun, to heal him, removed the sheath, as the Gemara says, so it should help the healing process of Avram. So when there's a solar storm, everything is Ashwach Pratis, nothing is an accident. If it reminds us of the idea of Shema Shemogan Hashem Alekim, 
that Hashem Elikim, Avayan Elikim, is like the sun and its sheath, the sun and its shield, as the Al-Tareb explains it in Shaykh Vamuna, the sun is the light of Eir Sof, and the sheath is like the Tzimtzum, then we can remind us of that when we see the soul, the sun going through its own storms, then it's a reminder of godliness, and that's beautiful, that's exactly what it should remind us of. When Mashiach comes, Ittaka says that Tzimtzum will be, no longer be a concealer, but a revealer, so in a sense, it's the sun shining in full glory. The moon will have its role, but we're talking about the sun now. So anything that reminds us of a godly element, absolutely. And the same could be in anything in the natural world, whether it's a storm or whether it's natural weather, meaning weather, regular weather, or calm weather. Everything is a lesson. So yes, that's the answer to that question. Okay, now a bunch of questions that came in. Finally decided to, to address it and bunch them together about lottery, the lottery. Here we go. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, please help me settle a disagreement with my friends. When the lottery jackpot reaches a big amount, sometimes I buy five tickets. My friends say it is meant, if it's meant to be that I win, all I need is one ticket. I'm told, I've told my friends their opinion is fallacious because what because what it means, what, what, what if it's meant to be that I lose four games and then win the jackpot on the fifth ticket? Their counter-argument was that someone once asked the Rebbe for a bracha to win the lottery, and the Rebbe gave a bracha, but said to only buy one ticket. Since I can't find a source for this, the friendly disagreement between my friends and I are at a stalemate. I also want to add that even though I want to be the one to win because it will ease my burdens, I give a blessing that someone in our community should win, and hopefully someone will use a portion of the money for tzedakah to support terror institutions that honor the Rebbe's parents. Amen. Yes, I said amen to my own bracha, because why not? A few other questions in the same vein. This is what really propelled me and prompted me to speak about it, because here are two different notes I received, which seem to be, could be from the two, two spouses, each one writing independently. I don't know if one knows about the other. So I thought it was interesting. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, please help me resolve a disagreement I'm having with my husband. Every week he buys $20 worth of lottery tickets. I told him that if it's God's will for him to win, he only needs to buy one ticket. He replied that my argument was fallacious because what if it's God's will that I buy 10 tickets, loses on the first nine, but wins on the 10th. Now that I read this, I see it seems like the same writer just wrote about it first about friends and now about a husband. Okay. So be it, I guess you wanted to get my attention, so you're writing it in different angles. It's hard to imagine people, two people using the word fellatio, it's almost the same words. And here too, I, I told him I think the Rebbe once said a person should buy one ticket. Is there a source where the Rebbe said this? I can show my husband. Thank you. And may Hashem bless that a Jew with good intentions do obviously saw by giving Zdaka to Jewish organizations win the grand jackpot of the lottery. Okay. And finally, it seems maybe three versions of one person now that I'm thinking. First, I thought it was a husband and wife. Who knows? Anyway, hi, Rabbi Jacobs. My family loves your show, and we watch together every Sunday night after dinner. Keep up the good work. My wife always complains and argues with me when I buy lottery tickets. I feel I'm reading a redundant letter, but okay, listen. No one said that my life is applied. Can't have some amusing and humorous elements to it. So, okay. I don't overdo it and bet more than I can afford, just 10 or $15 a week. 
She keeps telling me I can only buy one more one per week. I told her that buying one ticket hasn't worked for me yet. And sometimes if we have, if we have a friend that is sick and we say a chapter of Tilim and it doesn't work, then we can increase and say two or three psalms. The more we do, the more chances it will work. And my wife is against the concept of getting rich quick. Quick. I told her we have a concept of of ayin, which means the blink of an eye when it comes to tshuva. So why not have a life change for the better in the blink of an eye with instant wealth? I think the only way I can satisfy my wife is to actually win the lottery and buy her all the things she wants. Am I doing something wrong by asking Hashem for a miracle? Okay. So there we go. So yes, indeed, the Rebbe did speak about it. And I actually spoke about it in episode 233, if you want more details. It was in Tavshin Nun Aleph. The Rebbe speaking to Machni Yisrael. And people came over to the Rebbe afterwards. And one person asked the Rebbe, buying a, buying a lottery ticket. And the Rebbe said, yes, but only one. So there's a clear source for that. And the answer is, and the reason is, So you made your tasa. If Hashem wants you, that one ticket will win. Once you start buying five, why not buy 500? Why not 5,000? So if you want to make a keli, you made a keli. And that's enough. Now why in business do we, is, do we say otherwise? The truth is it's a machzedek, and chassidus explains, no. In business too, it says, do what you need to do, and Hashem will give the blessing. Now, what about people who put more effort to make even more? So the Alter Rebbe talks in Tanya about, in order to make more than ever, more profit, if you do it L'Shem Shemayim. But in generally, when you, once you make a keli, Hashem will bless you in that keli. You don't need to go crazy. And that's where he talks about people who are mind is completely consumed. You want to make more effort, make more effort. But your whole life is dependent as if your effort is alone is going to do it. No, there's Hashem's blessing that's part of it. When it comes to a lottery, then it's completely Hashem's blessing because there's no real effort on your part. The effort is buying the ticket. In work, there's at least the yagaiti matsasi element. There is work and effort. So that's where there'd be a distinction. And in general, finally, which is going to lead me to the next question, the Taylor's view on things is that you work for a living. So a person's going to say, I'm all going to do is buy lottery tickets and take loans until I win. That's not a, the civilized manner, which means L'Shevesi Tzara, the Taylor approach. In general, relying on something that doesn't take much effort is not a Torah approach, which leads me to the next question. Gambling. Hello, Rabbi. I have a friend that goes to a casino every Sunday and plays card and dice games. I have criticized him often about this and told him it's prohibited by the Torah. His reply is that he doesn't gamble more than he can afford, so he feels it's okay. I told him that gambling is a bad idea, and his reply was that all religious people gamble, gamble by betting their, that there's a God and an afterlife, so if it's a bad idea, then, I'm, then if it's a bad idea, then I'm also guilty. What can I say to convince him to spend his time and money more effectively? Well, which goes back to the general question, what should be our attitude toward gambling? So there is a Gemara that talks about this. It says, a masachik b'kuvi is posilet. A person who plays kuvia it can be cards, it can be dice. But it's a form of gambling. Is postulated is why? Because he's not living a life that's responsible. We work for a living. Now, someone who gambles for entertainment purposes and is completely not about making the money is another question whether it's bechlal, something that is may not be usher prohibited, but is it the spirit of Torah? Because in general, 
Gambling is not in the spirit because, again, exactly as the word suggests, gamble. You're gambling, taking a chance. Does it create a thrill? Yes. But does that something that's tailoring the thrill? Now, whether it's prohibited or not, that you have to go to Arof to. We'll talk about it. Definitely, we know that gambling can lead to an addiction. And serious addiction, as bad as any addiction, destroys families. I've dealt with this many times, unfortunately. Because gambling, again, that whole, the whole spirit of it is connected to things that are not a normal engagement, a normal negotiation. So you begin to rely on something, and then you take a loan and become unrealistic. So essentially, it can lead to irresponsible behavior. Does it have to lead? No. As I said, I know people who gamble, and they do it as an entertaining thing, and they're under control. But you also see how it feeds a person to try again, try again. Maybe the next one I'll win. Let's look. Look at the one-armed bandits, they call it, in Las Vegas or other casinos. So in general, it's not the spirit of Teda to gamble. Regarding, regarding a, a friend, well, it's like anything in life. A person who's doing something that you think is not good for their lives, especially if you see it's causing damage to relationships. People who gamble can avoid their wives. They start lying. They, as I said, they take loans. They don't tell people, and then it can create a lot, a lot of problems. I don't know if that's the situation here. If it's, you see that, so it's like seeing someone who's on drugs or alcohol. As a good friend, you do encouraging as much as possible. You try to bring others into it. Obviously, you want to do it in a way where you, that the person's going to listen and not just avoid you altogether. And it's like many challenges of how do we influence someone who's doing something that doesn't seem healthy or appropriate. Again, I don't know the family situation of this person, but very often that's the place to begin. You know, not that you can go speak to the family, but a person has a spouse, has children. You want to be responsible in that sense. So that's how I would approach it, just like in anything else. Is there a guaranteed school that always works in order to become wealthy? Hello, Rabbi Simon. Is there a guaranteed school that always works in order to become wealthy? Is there a certain prayer we can say before buying a lottery ticket or rolling the dice to guarantee we will win a million dollars? If the results of prayers are not guaranteed, then what good is prayer in general? Well, prayer has to come also with a keli that the Torah says is appropriate keli. Appropriate keli is to get a job and work and invest and find ways that, are, that, that lead to a lottery ticket we spoke about, one ticket. But if a person is going to obsess and say, I'm going to buy lottery tickets or roll dice and say that's where the bracha should come, that's not considered, as I said, one of the regular um, civilized ways, according to Teda, to make the keli. I know there are people who are professional gamblers who make parnasa on it. That, again, should be asked by a rav. If it's something that can be defined as professional and there's completely no risk, well, there's always risk. But I mean to say that there is some logic behind it. I have not heard about it. Generally, gambling means that. Yes, of course, you roll the dice enough times, you're going to win something. But overall, the house usually wins. So it's not really necessarily an investment which is... 50-50, 50-50, every investment has risk, but the risk there is far, far higher, and especially if a person gets trapped in it. So baraches and tefillas are great, but they also have to have something that's somewhat of a keli that the tater would say is a keli. One ticket, the Rebbe said. That's a keli. And then move on. Okay.
a few other questions. This next one is a very sensitive one. And so viewer discretion advised. And if it's something that children, it's not necessarily for children to listen to. So please be aware of that. But still, it's a reality on the ground. And um, it's been a while since I've spoken about such sensitive matters. Earlier on with my life, because it's applied, I used to speak about this a lot more. But I covered it a lot, especially in the areas of intimacy and sexuality and um, inappropriate content. But there, I do have a backup of quite a few questions in that regard. So I will scatter them and address them as, uh, as I see fit. But I want to go now to this, this question here. What should I do about discovering my grandfather watching inappropriate content? Again, I read this with a lot of pain, and I really waited back and forth, but something did happen that another person came to me with a similar story, and I realized it's not an isolated event, at least in, the, in broad terms. So let me address it. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I've never written to you before, but I watch your weekly My Life Chassidah Supplied episodes and enjoy them immensely. I write today with a broken heart and for advice. Today I was helping my father, a married chassid in his 80s, and was on his laptop, which only he uses, and I saw in his history that it was full of visits to uh, inappropriate websites. Of course, it was very painful to see, as I know him as a chassid who davens properly, learns, and so on. I guess the, the Yetzirah is a wily craftsman and has managed to trap my father in this behavior. I did not confront him, but would like to get him help, and I just don't know how to go about doing this. While we are close, I don't want to embarrass him by confronting him with the knowledge that I know about his defilement, Yet I don't want to share this with others, as this would be a breach of his privacy. What should be the next steps I take, if at all? With blessings for a good and sweet new year, and may Hashem eradicate the Yitzhahara from our midst with a complete redemption. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. This was a follow-up. I, f- I wrote to you a couple of weeks ago concerning the disturbing, inappropriate content I found on the laptop of my 85-year-old chassid father. While I totally understand that the topics you have been covering in your weekly My Life Chassidus Applied have been, have been time-related to the holiday season, I write to you for advice because of the anonymity. I don't want to discuss this with anyone because it is not just about me. I don't want to discuss my father's problem with others without his knowledge, outing him, so to speak. If you would address this issue in your next program, I would so appreciate it. So I see it's father. I'm not sure why I said grandfather. Maybe I misread. Okay. Regardless, now, this can come in different shapes, this question, people who know of others, friends, spouses, or others. It's not an easy question to answer. To say to ignore it, and it's his problem, I mean, if Na'ivra they say to Mikshel in a way, which means even though he may be doing it, and it's, he's an adult, but still we have responsibility for each other and especially if it may affect others in the family. On the other hand, you're right. I mean, go ahead. What are you going to start announcing it? To whom? My initial inclination is 
You talk about your father. I wonder about your mother. Is she around? Or is she not around? If she is alive, hopefully, and please God, then it may be um, something at least in a, uh, I guess, subtle way. You don't have to say explicitly. And uh, just to make her aware. And because she may be the person that needs to address it more than you as a son. Now, if a mother is not available or it's not appropriate to do that, for whatever reason, I would probably advise you to speak to a mashpia. I mean, if you want to call me, feel free to do so. I'm not necessarily your mashpia, but because I think there are more nuances here and details. Like, how would your father react if you did say something? Is it appropriate for you as a son to say something? And um, are there other ways that maybe this can be addressed? Now, we're all, we all understand that it's a very subtle and very nuanced issue because, again, whatever you do is not going to be perfect. And the last thing you want is to create something that is just purely embarrassment that doesn't have any benefit. Um, so that's why I'm treading very carefully. But I definitely would not just ignore it. I would look to, um, as I said, to your mother if she's around or if there's some way to broach it with your father, but not in a direct way. In other words, I wouldn't say to him, hey, I saw this on the laptop. I would speak to him about your own challenges, maybe um, uh, deflect it, or maybe even talk about a third party and say, would, would, would you advise? Now, he may get the hint, he may not get the hint, but he may give you advice. How, how would you approach it? So there are wise ways to do it. That's probably what I would do. I say probably because I'm thinking as we speak. To be honest, I don't have, again, I've never seen a direct response to something of this nature. I would like to think, find if there's something in the Igres from the Rebbe, not necessarily in this context, but another context similar. But if anybody does have anything that they would like to add, please share it with me and I will share it with the public, if appropriate. And, um, and so I would probably lean toward that, speaking to your father, but not directly, never confronting him, never saying what you know, because of respect and so on, but in a far subtler way, by talking around, talking about theoretically someone else, and seeing how he responds to that, and maybe that can lead to more. Now, when it comes to a child of your own or a friend, obviously you don't have the issue of kibudav, and there it's also not someone older than you, someone more like a colleague, a pair. So there, too, you have to also be careful because what you say, want, you want it to have an effect. You don't just want to say something and the person just ignores you or just refuses to talk to you. But there it doesn't have this subtle, this uh, additional sensitivity that we're discussing right now. Now, maybe we'll talk about it some more if uh, something comes to me, but these are the ideas and thoughts that I have at this point. But the final thing I want to say is to you as a son, look, human beings are not perfect. This cannot allow you to affect even though it will affect, but affect all the beautiful things about your father. People do things that are not appropriate sometimes. And yes, emotionally has a deep, it's almost traumatizing, especially when it's a father. But you have to find ways to respect him and find the beauty and goodness while also knowing, and this is the lesson to all of us, that we all are capable of having our weak points and weak spots. It's not a justification, it's just an awareness and um, and in general, that we don't judge others because we all can have situations where we may succumb or be seduced by something that's not appropriate. Above all, the key is to transform that into something positive 
And I believe this can be done in this case as well. You just have to find the right way to do so, as I said, by broaching it, but not in a direct, but, in, 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 but rather in an indirect way. Taliban. Going over to another topic altogether, Taliban. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first, thank you greatly for your wonderful videos. They are, tr- tr- they are a treasured repository. They are a treasured repository of clear and contemporary applications of chassidus that will surely, surely help carry us toward the ultimate gula. Thank you. I am hoping I can respectfully ask you this question on, that relates to these week's parshas. As the news of the Taliban's success in Afghanistan came out, I couldn't help but wonder at the irony of the juxtaposition to the chitas of a few, uh, well, this chitas is referring to a few weeks ago, actually months ago, Lahavdil Elif Havdalis. It would seem that if many of these psukimarashis were Lahavdil the subject of Taliban headlines today, most of us would have a visceral increase in our disgust for the Taliban. For example, the treatment of women in the Afasteir and Rashi 22-23, this is Pasha Kisetse, seems to blame the woman on account of man's instincts, something society today would not accept. And then some of the harsh punishments for adultery, that today's, etc., that today's society would not tolerate. I am familiar with the story of the Rebbe and the rocket ship analogy, but this would seem to simply say, our fundamentalism is more right than yours. How can we read these verses in today's society with the same confidence and mission as as you shall be a light unto the nations. Thank you for reading, and I look forward hearing, to hearing back from you. It's an excellent question, and it does fit in a way you could talk about the Akeda. Again, on surface level, it seems to be quite cruel. And if someone tried to do that today, the Taliban, we would say they're barbarians. Well, the first qu- the answer is, no, our fundamentalism is not different than their fundamentalism, because fundamentalism in general is not a Torah thing. We follow what God says is not fundamentalism. Hashem is tev, etzma tev, teva tev lehetiv. It's all about goodness and kindness. He would not create this world if it was not for goodness. Tev is a tev is chesed. I, the fact that sometimes the tev says things that are harsh and blunt and talks about different punishments and even death, that's also part of tev is chesed. You have to learn why. You have to learn the deeper reasons, learn the chesedis and kabbalah of it, the primius. Terem idaberes belyenim, remezes betachtenim. Speaks about things above and hints to things below. So that's the first thing we need to know. And as I spoke before about Avram and Akedah, Avram knew this was God. It wasn't a question that he's a fundamentalist and is this God or not God. It all begins with God and ends with God. It's not about a person's extremism. The word extremism is not appropriate when you're talking about Hashem. Hashem is not an extremist. He tells us what is right and what is wrong. So, is right. Other schools of fundamentalism, I'm not going to get into where it came from, where it originates from. Is it originate from God? Not necessarily. Is it a distortion of things they heard from their teachers who may have distorted what they read in the Torah? Because they all looked into the Torah? Absolutely, yes. So to start comparing as distortion to the original that comes straight from God, is not comparable. So we have to, on its own, understand Yifas Teyar, Akedis Yitzchak, and other stories of how the Torah talks about what you do to, to adultery or other things. And that is independent of what others are doing. Just because two people may be doing the same thing doesn't mean it's coming from the same place. 
So yes, have things evolved from the Bible, from the Torah, that have become fundamentalist extremism? Look, I mentioned before about people killing others in the name of God. Remember the attack on 9-11, all the terrorism. Name of a jihad, a holy war. To extract and destroy and annihilate all the infidels and everything that's anti-God in their mind. That's not what the Torah and God advocates. You don't see Jews doing that. You don't see us going to, Nazi, to Germany after the Nazis did what they did and, and, and invoke revenge. Because there's a tater way for things. And what it says in Chumash, the time that, the, that was applied is applied. doesn't mean you can go ahead and do whatever you want. And when a person uses a tater to do whatever they want, that's desecrating tater. Novel Brishus tater. So the distinction is what God wants and there's explanations for it. Now, what the explanation exactly is, we can discuss. But I'll leave that for another time. Actually, I can refer you to different talks I've given on this. Actually, I have two articles. Is the Torah violent? About Amalek and about the Shiva Amim, and so on. And talks about why that really how it seems so, uh, so cruel destroy all men, women, and children of Amalek. And the same thing when they went to Eretz Yisrael. So you can look up on MeaningfulLife.com. You'll find the articles I've written on this with sources and so on. But it's completely not comparable, comparable or compatible. Finally, the Chassidus question. Rabbi, can you please describe what the experiences of Tainug and Alakus are supposed to look like or feel? So many, so many Mamorans speak about not being involved in empty Tainug from Gashmias, from physical, rather to only have tainuk from alakus, pleasure from alakus. Many of us don't feel pleasure when putting on film or saying a bracha, etc., etc. Please elaborate what the experience is like and maybe how it can be attained. Excellent question. So briefly, we have to use Gashmis as an example because the way we were created, we naturally have pleasure from physical things. It could be from good food and drink. It could be from sleep coming from other activities that give us pleasure. I'm not even talking about things that are prohibited, even though that's also in, the, in, the, in this, uh, content, in this uh, category. So what does it feel like when you have pleasure? You eat something. Even thinking about something, you're going to a party, you're going to a, an event, and you have physical pleasure. You feel, you feel uplifted, you feel pleasure, you feel good, fulfilled. That teaches us that you can also have pleasure in other things that you may not yet be aware of. The Alter Rebbe in Pasha Chukas Lukut says that the power of desire, Koyecha Mesave, is you say, Dose, it's rooted in a very high place. It's the taiva, the object of the desire, that's the issue. So what we learn from physical pleasure is that the power of desire that desires these objects, these physical objects, that is healthy. What we have to do is redirect the object of desire. So a child may be very find a lot of pleasure playing with toys on the reading a lollipop. An adult may like things like reading a book, going for a walk, making money. What Chassidus teaches us is that you see from this that we can have pleasure in different things. Children, sm- small objects, immature objects. Adults are more mature objects. So let's take it to the next step. The more you learn about Ruchnius and Alukus, 
that pleasure can be directed, just like the, the pleasure of, you're not interested in sitting on the ground and playing with Lego, but reading a book, just like you can direct the pleasure. And it's the same ple- power of pleasure, it's only directed differently. So, say too, you, so too, you can direct it, redirect it toward godly matters. But for that, you need to appreciate godliness. Because you can't have pleasure in something you don't relate to. When we put on film or say brachas or other things, we're doing it mechanically in many cases. That's why learning chsidus, you learn about what the ruchnis of it is and how it impacts you, that it opens you up to deeper levels of higher consciousness and deeper levels of reality. So just like some people have pleasure when they have to think about uh, or study quantum mechanics or study about some of the mysteries of nature, so there's also the mysteries of the divine within nature and within existence. And that can lead one to equal level of pleasure. So you have to find the thing where you are transferring and redirecting the, the, the power of pleasure toward something that is something godly. Some people speak about when they dance with the Rebbe on Simchas So that was a godly experience. And you palpably felt pleasure and Simcha and joy. Now, obviously there you could say the Rebbe led it all. But there are ways that we too can get inspired in that way. If you start thinking about the birth of a new child, not just your pleasure that you have a new baby, but think of it as God's gift, that God sent you a spiritual gift, a new neshama and a new child and a new body. That's a taste of it. So it's really about finding ways that when you eat a meal, you're not just enjoying the meal, but also the divine sparks within it. So it's really appreciating more subtle and ethereal pleasures and enjoying them that defines what means tainug and elikus. Now I'm talking about low levels. Chassidus starts talking about tainug, avabit tainugim, tainug elikita, highest levels. But let's, I'm, I'm specifically speaking on levels that we can relate to. The Alta Rebbe, Mitla Rebbe writes in the beginning of Akuntus Hispilus that Kol Magmose, the entire objective and goal of the Alta Rebbe is that we should have pleasure in elikus like we have pleasure in Gashmis. That we should enjoy and be driven and drawn to godliness as we're drawn to physicality. Can that be the case? Absolutely. People who are seeking spirituality, they're seeking something that has ruchnis, not just gashmis. It has very deep pleasure when a person is contemplating on higher divine levels, and especially Yilok Siddhis, there's a gishmak in it. These are a taste, this is a beginning taste of Tainug and Elikus. And as we grow and expand our horizons and expand our containers, we can only grow in this greater, greater, and greater. So with this, we'll conclude episode 375 of My Life Chassidus Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone called to, should be a pleasurable, a chassidish, a pleasurable and uh, revealing week in all possible ways. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com donate.